It is so nice to not have to preach to a camera. I don't know if I know how to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm so, so grateful for this, so grateful to see you all here. This is a really sweet time. And as I said, I meant what I said at the beginning, that you know, I'm aware of, of just, I live in the same world that you do. I see the same headlines that you do. I see the unrest. I see the chaos. I see the madness. I see the insanity. I see the lies. I see the deception just like you do. This is not an escape from that. This is a time of equipping to prepare us to engage that. So as we look at Daniel's final chapter, as we finish the book this morning, I want this to equip you, to help you change us and challenge us and, and prepare us to engage a world with real hope, real answers, all of which are found in Christ. And unfortunately, I mean, the pandemic was no different than any other time in our life, but unfortunately, during the pandemic, we had to attend funerals. Some of those that we knew well and loved. And you see, one of the effects of attending funerals is that it forces us, doesn't it, to consider how it is we're spending our lives. I mean, it's inescapable. We're, we're sitting there, we're hearing about the person who died, and we hear about their lives and who they were and what it is that defined their lives. And what that does in that moment is it forces us to consider what will be said about us at our funeral, doesn't it? Who we were, how we lived, what it is exactly that defined our lives. And you see, that is exactly the question that I want you to answer this morning. What is it exactly that you want to be said about you at your funeral? Like if you could have anything said about you, what do you want to be said about you at your funeral? I mean, certainly that you loved your family, that you were honest, that you were hardworking, that you showed up to things on time, that you paid your bills, that you were a kind person. I mean, all those things, all those things, of course. And yet, the thing about those things is that even unbelievers can do those things. Those things are not inherently supernatural. Rather, I'm talking about things that make an impact for eternity. I'm talking about things that cause ripple effects for the glory of Christ. I'm talking about to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean that you counted all things lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That you did not consider your life as dear to yourself. That you, that you loved the word of God more than gold and silver. That you hungered and thirsted for righteousness. That you fought the good fight. You finished the course. You kept the faith. That you did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That you prayed without ceasing. That you gave thanks in all circumstances. That you made disciples. That you spoke the truth. That you proclaimed the gospel to lost people no matter the cost to your own lives. That you loved the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. I mean, does it not burn in your soul to have these things said about you even at this very moment? And the thing about everything that I just said is that all of those things, every single one of those things come directly from the Bible. And the other thing is, every single one of those things that I just mentioned is produced and unleashed in our lives when we are gripped by God's plan for history and how the world is going to end. In other words, 
a radical life recklessly abandoned to Jesus Christ is unleashed in our lives precisely when we get eschatology and what God has planned for the future. We need eschatology. I mean, that's not the only thing we need, but we do need that. And speaking of what God has planned for the end of the world, that's exactly what we see in our text this morning. That brings us to the very end of the book of Daniel. Because at the very end of the book of Daniel is the end of the world itself. A prophecy in which God reveals his final chapter for the plan of history. And again, it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? I mean, why, does, why does God do this? Why does God tip his hand and reveal what the end of the world is going to be? Why does God give us a backstage pass to see what he has planned for the end of time? And the answer is he does that not to make us lazy or flippant or apathetic, but he does it precisely to unleash us. He does it precisely to free us, to liberate us, to live radical lives recklessly abandoned to Jesus Christ, no matter the cost to our own lives so that it could be said at our funeral, here lies so-and-so. Who fought the good fight, who finished the course, who kept the faith to the very end. And when I say we get to the end, I mean it. I mean we get to the very end, the happy ever after, the grand finale, the consummation of all things in which God ties up every loose end of history. It's all here in Daniel chapter 12. And some people wonder, don't they, why the book of Daniel is shaped the way it is? Why the first six, chap- six chapters are these, these riveting tales of these, you know, uh, these faithful Jewish teens who risked it all, and then the last six chapters are these psychedelic prophecies about the end of the world, and these two parts of the book, they don't have anything to do with one another. Or do they? They do. They do because the radical faith of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was produced precisely by the theology of chapters 7 through 12. Everything that we love and admire about their lives was unleashed by a glorious vision of a, of a sovereign God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. And you see, my contention this morning in our final sermon in Daniel is that all of the life change and transformation that you crave is found precisely in knowing and loving eschatology. I mean, you've got to know this stuff. You've got to know this stuff. Not for quizzes and for grades, but for holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. So here we go. Six months, 16 sermons, and one pandemic after we began, we finished the book of Daniel. And here's where we're going. If you have notes this morning or you don't, either way, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text five gargantuan comforts. And yes, gargantuan, you have to write it. You have to write it down. It's necessary. Four, four, I maybe said five, four gargantuan comforts that sustain the soul in the present while we wait for the end. Four gargantuan comforts that sustain the soul in the present while we wait for the end. And so let's go to the prophecy, shall we? The final prophecy ever revealed to Daniel. Let's begin first with the dirty deeds of the Antichrist. The dirty deeds of the Antichrist. And I'm actually going to begin in chapter 11. And as you look at chapter 11, you remember, I hope, that chapters 10 through 12 in the book of Daniel 
are all one scene. And you remember, I hope, in chapter 10 that Daniel is a broken man. He is on his knees mourning over his Jewish comrades, and the reason for that is not because they were dead, but because they are spiritually dead. I mean, although they're back in Israel rebuilding their lives again, they are still largely unchanged. Apparently, they didn't feel the 70 years spanking in exile for their sin, and so they went back in Israel still largely apostate and apathetic. I mean, they didn't love God. They didn't fear God. They weren't particularly interested in God. And so Daniel's really bent out of shape here in chapter 10 because from a human perspective, it doesn't look like God's plan for Israel is ever going to work out. I mean, he has zero assurance that this whole exile thing isn't going to happen all over again. And so in response to his agonized prayers, God sends an angelic mailman to deliver a message, not just a message, but a prophecy. And not just a prophecy, but a prophecy that gave Daniel the guarantee that despite Israel's tragic condition, God was going to fulfill every single promise he ever made to his people. But see, here's the thing. Here's, here's how chapter 11 fits in the mix. Chapter 11 is this really long, strange, odd, bizarre, confusing chapter. But how it fits in the mix is that it traces all of the historical, specific historical events that lead up to and culminate in the end. And you remember maybe from a couple weeks ago that in verses 21 through 35, the angel reveals that hard times were coming for the Jewish people. Brutal and bloody and gut-wrenching times. And the reason for that is because God had ordained that 400 years after Daniel that a nasty, despicable king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV would rise up in history and absolutely dominate the Jewish people. He would desecrate the temple. He would drench the streets of Jerusalem with their blood until eventually the Jewish people, they had had enough and they revolted and they drove his army out of Israel and reclaimed their city and their temple for Yahweh. And from 170 BC to 164 BC, that is exactly what happened, precisely as the text predicts, because this is the word of God. It is real. It is genuine. It is divine. It is inspired. It is authentic. And yet what that does is brings us to the next set of prophecies in chapter 11, and they are nothing less than predictions of the very Antichrist himself, which is interesting, isn't it? Because without even taking a breath, the angel jumps from 164 BC to an unknown time in the future that still hasn't even happened yet. Because that's what prophecy does, you know. It reserves the right to skip centuries ahead into the future without even giving you a moment's notice because all of a sudden, verses 36 through 45, we are no longer talking about Antiochus, but someone still yet to come in the future. You see, the details in verses 36 through 45, they don't match up with Antiochus or anybody else for that matter because verse 40 says that whoever this is, he would live in the time of the end. What does that mean? It means the end times. And since Antiochus Epiphanes has been dead for 2,200 years, that hardly qualifies as the end times. And so the only option left for us is to see that what is predicted here is none other than the little horn of chapter 7, the evil prince of chapter 9, the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians 2, the beast from Revelation 13, known as the Antichrist himself. So if you've always wanted to know, and I know you have, uh, know what the Bible says about the most notorious monster who will ever live in history, your wish is granted this morning. So 12 dirty deeds of the Antichrist. Here we go. 
Dirty deed number one. Dirty deed number one. The text says that this evil king will commit unspeakable atrocities. Unspeakable atrocities. Look at verse 36. Short verse packed with significance. It says this king will do whatever he pleases. That's not good news. In other words, this monster, he will be given the freedom to give full vent to his violent lust and no one will be able to stop him. He will seem like he is invincible. In fact, chapter 7, verse 23 said that that the Antichrist will devour all of the earth and that he will crush it under his feet like Hitler or Stalin, but a thousand times over and on a global scale. Dirty deed number two. Dirty deed number two, this future king, he will exalt himself as God. He will exalt himself as God. In fact, dirty deeds two through five are all about his hideous self-worship and idolatry. Look at verses 36 and 37. I mean, this is, this is astonishing. It says, and he will exalt himself over every God. And he will speak blasphemous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the fulfillment of the indignation for what shall be done has been appointed. And he shall pay no regard to the God of his fathers, nor to the desire of women. He shall pay no regard to any God, for he shall exalt himself over everything. It's a little cryptic, but it's clear enough, isn't it? See, the Antichrist will gain worldwide global supremacy and domination and he will use his public platform to blaspheme the living God and and publicly reject the truth and replace it with its own. Verse 36 says that he will exalt himself over every God. He, He will speak shocking blasphemy against the Almighty. Verse 37 says that he will pay no regard to the God of his fathers. Meaning what? Well, it's tough to say we're not there yet, but that very well could describe his rejection of Christianity. Or, I mean, whatever spiritual legacy will have been handed down to him by his forefathers, he will totally reject that. And when it says that he will show no regard to the desire of women, that is easily the toughest Hebrew phrase in the entirety of the book, and yet it might be better translated as he will reject the one desired by women, which could be a strange way to refer to the Messiah himself, some people think. Either way, he will reject Christianity But I don't want you to get the idea that the Antichrist will be secular or irreligious. In fact, he's going to be quite devout and dedicated to the object of worship, which the end of verse 37 indicates will be himself. Look at the text. It says, He will pay no regard to any god, for he will exalt himself over everything. I mean, this is exactly what 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 predicts. Paul says that one day the man of lawlessness... The son of destruction shall appear. The one who opposes and exalts himself over everything called God or object of worship so that he will take his seat in the temple and he will declare himself to be God. And yet we know, don't we? His 15 minutes of fame and the spotlight of history will come to a violent end as King Jesus returns to establish his kingdom and bring his empire crashing to the ground, but then dirty deed number six. Dirty deed number six, the, the Antichrist will worship the God of war. 
He will worship the God of war, meaning war and power will also be the object of his worship. Look at verse 38. I mean, this is terrifying. It says, he shall glorify a God of fortresses. And he shall glorify God that his fathers did not know with gold and with silver and with precious stones and with treasures. You see, when I first read that, I literally got chills down my spine. Because when it says that he will glorify a God of fortresses, you know what that is? That's a metaphor for war. It's a metaphor for war. Other than himself, war and power and military might will be the God that he worships. Having successfully rejected all truth, the Antichrist will change the rules. You see, when he comes, the question will no longer be what is good, what is right, what is true. It will be who has the power and who has the biggest guns because that's what happens when you reject the truth. That's what happens when you embrace postmodernism. And look at the text, it says that he will, when it says that he's, he will glorify a God of war with silver and, and gold and precious stones and with treasures, it means that he will spend lavishly to increase his army. This guy will have one aim and objective, absolute world domination and supremacy. And he will have it. But then dirty deed number seven actually describes him, get this, it seems that he will own the world and that he will sell portions of the earth to anyone willing to pay a fee and join him as allies in this godless confederation of evil, which is really interesting because Daniel 7 and Revelation 17 both indicate that the Antichrist will be joined by 10 kings together and they will rule the world with greed and brutality. In other words, it seems that a one world government is coming, so it seems, And yet what they will not know, or at least they will refuse to believe, is that even when they are doing their worst, they will play right into the sovereign hands of God. Somehow the Antichrist and his godless coalition of kings will miss the irony of the fact that their rise and their fall had already been predicted in the text centuries before they ever even arrived on the scene of history. But they won't care about that. They'll be too blinded by their demon-inspired greed and ambition. But then Dirty Deeds 8 through 12 Believe it or not, describe his invasion and plundering of many lands, including the Arab world and especially the nation of Israel. Like wicked King Richard in Robin Hood, this greedy monster will do what he wants and he will take what he wants and no one will be able to stop him. But, but then all of a sudden the tide turns in verse 44. All of a sudden the cracks in the dragon's armor begin to show. As it turns out, he's not invincible. As it turns out, he'll have fears and anxieties just just like everybody else. Verse 44 describes that he will be terrified by rumors that come from the east and that come from the north. And the text doesn't say what exactly those rumors are, but something begins to stir which threatens his domination. So verse 45 in response to the rumors, notice what he does. He, he gathers an army. He gathers an outpost. Get this. Between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. 
He prepares for whatever is coming his way, for whatever it is that he's afraid of. He plants his camp between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Well, that's interesting because where else, where is there in the world where there is a beautiful holy mountain between two seas? Well, let's see. We've got the Mediterranean over here. We've got the Dead Sea over here, which means the only possibility here is Mount Zion itself. The middle of Jerusalem at the temple to be built in the future. What is happening here? Well, I suspect that the Antichrist, don't quote me on this, but I suspect that the Antichrist will know that Christ is coming, and yet somehow he will actually believe that he stands a chance. And he will gather in Jerusalem to meet him head on, and yet we know from Revelation 19 how that's going to turn out, don't we? Great for us, not so great for him. In fact, the end of verse 45 portrays his sudden death. Look at the text. It says, He will plant the tents of his palace between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Here it is. And he will come to his end and he will have no helper. And there it is, predicted in the text, centuries before it ever even happened in history. Not only the deeds of the Antichrist, but the death of the Antichrist. And maybe you're thinking... Why is this helpful for me? I mean, why are you preaching this to us? I could have known or not known about the deeds of the Antichrist and my life would be none the different to which I reply, well, there it is in the text, which means it has value, which means it has significance. And I don't think what this is doing is granting you permission to scour the news and try to figure out who the Antichrist might be. That, that's not the point of the text. Rather, the point of the text, get this, is that if God has the life and the deeds and the career and the death of the Antichrist already planned out beforehand, which he most certainly does, then we know that every moment of our lives is also under his control. See, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has ordained the worst tyrant in history to work out for his glory and our joy in that glory, and he has, then every event in our lives also has the exact same design. In other words, everything in our lives that is dismal and brutal and impossible is actually God behind the scenes ruling and reigning and governing and guiding and loving and leading and bringing every single moment to the exact outcome that he himself determined. It is not cliche to say that God works all things for good because that is exactly what he is doing. And what that does is help us persevere, doesn't it? But then you notice without a seam, without a flinch, without even so much as a, a, a pause to take a breath, the angel moves next to the captivating conclusion of human history. I mean, there's a chapter division in our Bibles, but, but it's artificial. It's artificial. It, there's the captivating conclusion of human history, which is chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Captivating conclusion, because again, we're only three quarters of the way through the movie here. 
We do not go to the theater just to see Darth Vader, but we go to see Vader vanquished by Luke Skywalker and the whole galaxy restored to its rightful place, which is precisely what chapters 12 verses 1 through 3 reveals. And there are three end times events in the text that you just have to know to make sense out of the future, and they are the tribulation, number two, there is the resurrection, and number three, there is the glorification tribulation, the resurrection, and the glorification. These are general blueprints for where history is going to go, and it's all in the text. So let's look first at the tribulation, verse 1. The angel says, And in that time, Michael the great prince who stands over the sons of your people shall arise. And a time, and there will be a time of distress which has not been since there was a nation until that time. And in that time, your people shall be saved or rescued or delivered. Everyone who was found written in the book. Notice, notice very carefully. The angel says, in that time. What time? What, what time is he referring to? He's referring to the time he just described back in verses 36 through 45 when the Antichrist is alive. That time. And and notice that he says that in that time that Michael the great prince shall arise. Michael who? Well, I don't know his last name, but I know that it is Michael the archangel. And notice what the angel says. Michael is the one who stands over the people of Israel. Meaning what? Meaning that Michael's job is to defend and fight for the Jewish people. And in the tribulation, he will be working overtime against the powers of hell led by the evil one. And you can read all about it in Revelation chapter 12. But, but notice what it says about that time. Verse 1. There shall be a time of distress such as has not happened since the time there was a nation until that time. In other words, translation, this time coming in the future will be the absolute worst in human history. I mean, there's no contest. There's there's no comparison. The Jewish Holocaust will be child's play in comparison to what is coming because what this is, well, and you can actually read about all about this in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 because what this is are the final seven years of history, the final three and a half years of which will be this nightmarish cocktail of cosmic destruction and the name for that time according to Christ in Matthew 24 is the great tribulation itself. Look at Matthew 24 in your notes, if you've got them. I mean, incredible correlation. Christ says, Whenever therefore you should see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then there shall be a great tribulation, such as has not become from the beginning of the world until that time, nor shall it ever become. I mean, this will be an absolute nightmare, unspeakable we don't really have categories to understand what this will be like. And yet, and yet, what we cannot lose sight of at this time, at this moment talking about this, is that the tribulation with all of its unimaginable terrors is God's idea. This is God's idea. The tribulation is not forced upon him from someone else. It's not as if God has to stand idly by watching this thing like a family, watching their house burn down. No, no. The tribulation was written into the script, and God is the one who put it there. Why? 
I mean, think about it. Well, after the flood, God promised that he would never judge the earth again, didn't he? By another flood. But he never said anything. He, said he, he never said he wouldn't do it by another way because that's precisely what the tribulation is. It is a flood of God's wrath in which he publicly declares that he has had enough. He will go public with his righteous anger. He will unleash his undiluted fury on the entirety of the earth. And, and yet, what you have to know also at this moment is that although the tribulation is mostly gloom and doom, there will also be grace. There will also be deliverance. It's not all bad news in the tribulation because you have to understand that one of the other designs of the tribulation is to save his elect from the people of Israel. And you can see it at the end of verse 1. Look at the text. I mean, yeah, it'll be a time of distress worse than any other time in history, but notice, here it is. It says, and in that time, your people shall be saved. Everyone who is written, found in the book. You notice first that this is about the Jewish people, don't you? The angel says, your people, Daniel. Your people, the Jews, the people of Israel, in the coming three and a half year nightmare on the earth, they're going to be saved, Daniel. They're going to be delivered, Daniel. They won't always be apostate and unbelieving. And I just want you to know, I just want you to know that this verse is needed to make sense out of the Bible. What I mean is, unless Sleeping Beauty gets awakened by the prince... There is no happy ending. There is no story here. And unless the people of Israel get awakened by the Prince of Peace, there is no happy ending to the story of redemption. I mean, it's got to go down this way. Why? Because God made covenants and promises in particular to the people of Israel. And even though right now they are largely apostate and even hate their own Messiah, God is going to so intervene so as to save them and to restore them and to fulfill every single promise he ever made to them. And as it turns out, it looks like it's in the tribulation that they will embrace him as their Messiah and their king. But you notice also there is a book. There is a book. And you notice also that it's not that every single individual Jew will be saved, but only those, only those, only those whose names are written in the book. Which means what we have here is sovereign election in the Lamb's book of life. And that book, by the way, is the ultimate definitive reason why you or anybody else, for that matter, ever get saved. In other words, if you belong to Christ here this morning, it's because you were singled out and selected for salvation. It's because your name was written in that book. And the only, the only criteria that got you written in that book was God's sovereign initiative and choice, which means our infinite joy in Christ was predestined for us before the ages began. But that brings us then to the second end times event that you've got to know, namely the nail-biting conclusion of the resurrection. The resurrection, look at verse 2. After the three and a half year trauma of the tribulation, the Messiah will return to establish his kingdom and watch what's going to happen when he does. Verse 2. 
It says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground shall awaken these to everlasting life, these to everlasting shame and contempt. And there it is. Everybody dies. And everybody gets resurrected. We know from chapter 5, John chapter 5, that when Christ returns, he will simply speak. And the scattered, worm-eaten bits and crumbs that used to be people will be supernaturally reassembled and people will emerge from the tomb as by the power of God. Centuries and centuries of people will rise from the dead and they will get in line and they will stand before the king. And the text makes it perfectly clear, doesn't it? There are but two possible destinations whereby people may spend their eternities. And think about that word just for a second. Pause and reflect. Eternity. 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 Everlasting, never ending conscious existence in a real body forever in but one of two possible locations. There is eternal life on the one hand, there is eternal shame and contempt on the other, and there is no door number. And although the text doesn't say here what it is that determines where one will spend their eternity, we know without question from the Bible that all of it depends on what you do with Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And by do, I mean radical faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. I mean the unqualified, thirsty submission to Jesus Christ as King and Lord and Savior and treasure in whom is found alone eternal salvation through His sin-bearing, substitutionary death. And those who yield and embrace Christ by grace through faith, they will rise to eternal life, everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure forever and ever and ever. But those who hedge their bets who gamble with the odds, who sit on the fence of the universe, who gamble their eternities on a life of independence apart from God's loving rule, they too will live forever, but not in the way they hoped. The text says that these will go to everlasting shame and contempt. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. But here the text says eternal shame and contempt which rules out the possibility of annihilation. You see, the opposite of eternal life is not that one ceases to exist, but that their eternal existence is characterized by shame and contempt, meaning they will be the object of God's undiluted fury and justice forever. And no one likes this. No one likes hell. No one gets their jollies off of people talking about the eternal torment of people forever with every nerve ending in their body, functioning at full capacity forever and ever and ever. And yet, and yet, that's the thing. We do not make the rules. This is not theology by majority. This is fair. This is right. This is what we all deserve. And this is in the text.
And yet, and yet, although hell is a real place, and people go there, and people are there, even as we speak, God in his love has made a way where people don't have to bear that punishment. We know that in the ultimate plot twist of the universe, the love of God made a way for sinners to avoid the wrath of God for the glory of God by providing a substitute to stand in the place of sinners, to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit, to purchase with his blood eternal salvation paid in full. Not merely, not merely to help you avoid hell, but to reconcile you to God as the treasure of your soul. And you know, you know that that substitute is without question that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet the question, the question that I have to ask or I would forfeit my calling, the question is, have you truly yielded to the king by faith? Do you actually belong to him? Is this more than a cultural thing? Is this, is this mean everything to you? Have you embraced Jesus Christ by faith? Or don't, you can't just assume. We don't have the luxury to just assume. Have you embraced Jesus Christ? I'm not trying to unnecessarily get you to, to, um, to dig around too much or be unnecessarily introspective, but you have to ask the question. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Because he stands right now. He stands right now full of love, full of pity, ready to save, ready to, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who comes to him hungry and repentant. The question is, have you yielded your life to the king? Which brings us then to end times event number three. End times event number three that you've got to get a handle on, and it's this. It's the glorification. It's glorification. Look at verse three. It says, and those who are wise, you could even translate that. The Hebrew indicates you could translate that as those who make others wise. But those who are wise will shine like the splendor of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So let's do a little theology here. Let's, let's put some pieces together. Follow. Those whose names are written in the book, verse 1, who rise to eternal life, verse 2, will at the end of the age, verse 3, shine like the splendor of the sun and with the glory of the stars. What does this mean? It means, at the very least, our post-resurrection bodies will be sinless and perfected and glorified bodies that reflect and radiate the very splendor of God himself. We will return to our pre-fall condition, but with an upgrade called glorification, a radiant and resplendent glorification which we reflect and radiate the very majesty of God himself. Christ himself said in Matthew 13, 43, he says that when he returns, the righteous, he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so think about it. Think about what this does for our lives even today, even at this very moment. One day we will rise from the dead never to die again. And the sinless, 
glorified bodies, we will co-rule the kingdom. We will co-rule the kingdom with Jesus Christ and anything, anything we've ever lost or suffered for his sake will be restored to us a thousand times over. And what that does is free us, does it not? It frees us to live our lives and to give our lives and to sacrifice our lives and to to invest our lives in ministry in the local church. That's what it does. Because did you notice what verse 3 actually said? Look at the text. Look what it says. It says, those who are wise, or even make wise, notice, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the splendor of heaven. What does that mean? What does it mean to lead many to righteousness? I'll tell you what it means. It means evangelism. It means discipleship. It means ministry. Well, what else could it mean to lead others to righteousness? I mean, this is staggering. You see, the point is, what will characterize the lives of those who are in the kingdom are those who gave their lives and who spent their lives to reach other people with the truth. That's what the text reveals. So surprising to me. Never expected to encounter something like this in the text. And, and yet, yet, notice, the, the evidence of authentic faith is not just that you are wise and righteous, but that you seek to make others wise and righteous through the proclamation of the gospel. Don't you see, if, we have truly, if we've truly been awakened we will then seek to awaken others through the proclamation of the gospel. If we've really been delivered from destruction, we will then seek to awaken others through that, awaken others and deliver them from that very same destruction. The question is, did you realize, did you realize that to be a Christian is synonymous with being on a mission? Did you know that to be saved by grace automatically makes you an ambassador and messenger of that grace? Did you know that to be a disciple automatically places upon your shoulders the responsibility to make disciples of others? The question is, did you know that? And do you, do you seek to do this? Do you seek to lead others to righteousness through the proclamation of the truth? Because that is why we're here. But that brings us finally to the precise prediction of the end of time. The precise prediction of the end of time, verses 4 through 13. And you have to know that the angel's done prophecy is over here. This whole thing is done. Daniel has just received one of the most comprehensive prophecies in the entirety of the Old Testament. And in verse 4, the angel tells Daniel to do the most obvious thing. Look what he says. He says, but you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal this book until the time of the end. Many shall go back and forth or to and fro, or the word could be roam around, and knowledge shall increase. But, But notice what the angel said. Because when he said to conceal the, the words and seal the book, essentially what he's saying is, Daniel, keep that book safe. Make sure that book that we all know as Daniel today, make sure that gets into the right hands, Daniel. 
and make sure that it is preserved and protected and inserted into the sacred book of Holy Scripture. And wouldn't you know it, the very fact that we are reading Daniel today, 2,557 years later, indicates that this command to preserve the book has been fulfilled. But then all of a sudden, the weirdest thing happens. You see, as it turns out, there are three angelic beings here in the scene. There's one speaking directly to Daniel, and there are two others in the background, one on this side of the river and one on that side of the river. And all of a sudden, they begin to speak with one another in this triangulation crossfire, and Daniel is allowed to eavesdrop on their discussion. And what he reveals, what Daniel hears, is in verse 7, notice this, that in verse 7 he hears that the time of distress, the tribulation to come, when the Antichrist drenches the earth with the blood of martyrs, he says that this tribulation will go on, notice, for time and times and half of a time. Meaning what? Meaning 3.5 Years, just like chapter 9, verse 27, and Revelation 11 reveal. And notice, notice the end of verse 7. I mean, this, this is shocking. It says, And when this shattering of the power of the holy people is finished, all these things will be fulfilled. Do you see what this is? The holy people are the Jews. And the angel is reiterating that the Jews during the 3.5-year monsoon of terror called the tribulation, that their power will be shattered, meaning they and everybody else are going to endure hell on earth for three and a half years. But then the end will come. And to be totally honest, Daniel kind of feels like we do. I mean, he understands the words, but he doesn't understand what they mean. And he says so in verse 8. Look what he says. He says, and I understood the words, or I heard the words, but I did not understand. And I said, Lord, what is the outcome of these things? I think Daniel doesn't see how the parts connect. He doesn't see how the dots connect with one another. And so I think his question is essentially, okay, okay, um, After the three and a half year time of terror and distress, what's then? What what will happen to my people after the end of the tribulation? I mean, is there going to be any of my people left? How is this thing going to go down? Help me understand eschatology is essentially his question. And the angel answers his question. Kind of. Sort of. In a sense for the most part, indirectly. And what I mean is, what I mean is, rather than satisfy Daniel's every curiosity about the future, he instead gives Daniel four gargantuan comforts to sustain him in the end as he waits for the end. And so as promised, here they are. Four gargantuan comforts comforts that sustain us in the present while we wait for the end. Comfort number one, the unchangeable security of God's word. The unchangeable security of God's word. Look at verse 9. The the angel says in response to Daniel's request, he says, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are concealed and sealed until the time of the end. Meaning what? Meaning that everything God has predicted in his word will come to pass in exactly the way he predicted it. 
When it says to conceal and seal, it doesn't mean to hide from public view. It means to, it's to, it means to prevent from contamination, prevent from alteration. And so the comfort that Daniel needed in this moment, the comfort that we need every moment of our lives, is the assurance that God's word is certain and guaranteed and unbreakable and that all of it will go down exactly as the text describes. Why that's a comfort for us, why that's a gargantuan comfort for us is because, you have to understand this, what's real is not necessarily what we feel. But what's real is what God has revealed in the text. And what God has revealed is that if you are in Christ, no matter what it seems like, it feels like in the moment, God loves you and he is in control. Comfort number two. The loving intentionality of the tribulation. The loving intentionality of the tribulation. And all I'll say is this, we're short on time, but I will say that, the, that in verse 10, the angel makes clear that the purpose of the tribulation was not to eliminate Israel, but to purify Israel. It was not to exterminate Israel, but to prepare them for everything God had promised to give them. And I just want you to know that is the same with our trials today. You have to understand that all of the trials and challenges and pain that we experience in our lives is not evidence, if you are in Christ, of God's separation, but it is instead evidence of his preparation. Does that make sense? All of the pain and trials you experience if you are in Christ are not evidence of God's separation, but of his preparation, preparation for the paradise to come. Comfort number three, the mathematical certainty of the end. The mathematical certainty of the end, because that's the thing about the sovereign plan of God. God's not winging this thing. He's not writing the script as he goes. No, God has planned every single detail with absolute mathematical precision and certainty, and you can see it in verses 11 and 12. These crazy verses. He says, but from the time the regular sacrifice is removed to the placing of the abomination of desolation, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and who reaches until the 1,335 days. It's your favorite verse. You got it on a little plaque or a painting at your house, don't you? And, and I know what the verse sounds like. It... it, it it seems confusing, but it's not. It's not confusing. It's a comfort. It's intended as comfort for Daniel. Why? Because the angel reveals with those numbers the very day that the tribulation is going to begin and the very day that the tribulation is going to end. It will begin when the Antichrist stops the sacrifices and it will begin when he commits the, it will end rather, when he commits the abomination of desolation. And the time that elapses between those two events is 1,290 days or approximately three point five years but then i love this there's an extra 45 days blessed are those who wait for and who reach the 1335 days what are we talking well what are the extra 45 days for maybe the better question is what's going to happen at the end of the 1335 days and the answer is the kingdom 
The kingdom is going to happen. You see, after Christ returns, one might reasonably expect that it will take 45 days for the kingdom to be inaugurated and so a special blessing is placed upon those who hope for and wait for that day. The, the point is, the point is, the mathematical precision of God's plan liberates us to live radical lives recklessly abandoned for his glory. I've said it this way before. Even the day of your death has already been determined, and until that day, you are invincible. Finally, comfort number four. We're almost done. The hope-giving beauty of eternity. The hope-giving beauty of eternity. Look at the comfort extended to Daniel and to you in verse 13. He says, but you, go your way to the end, and you will rest and you will stand, or you will rise, and you will receive your, and the word there is, inheritance at the end of days. And there it is. There it is. That, that verse right there pulls the whole book together. It does. That verse right there is the ultimate game changer of reality. You see, this verse right here contains realities that explain why it is that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and, Be- and Abednego could face a fiery furnace or spend a night in a lion's cage or stare down murderous kings and live for the glory of Yahweh no matter the cost to their own lives because they understood that whether God delivered them in that moment or not, it made no difference. It made no difference how they died or when they died. It made zero difference. Why? Because either way, they knew at the end of the age, God would raise them from the dead just as if they had never died in the first place. And they would receive their eternal inheritance and reign with their Messiah and shine like the splendor of the stars and the glory of the sun in the kingdom. That's what they knew. That's what empowered their lives. And that's what you know also. And that's what will empower your lives also. Because that's what faith in Christ is. And I close with this. That's what faith in Christ is. Not not some irrational leap into the unknown. But it's to cling with moment by moment desperation to the promises of God found in his word. All of which culminate in his son. And that's why the book of Daniel is in your Bibles. To give you a pair of lenses, profoundly theological, and maybe I should say eschatological lenses that let you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that despite what you feel and what you see, that God will humble the proud. God will save his people. God has a plan. And God is going to win it all. In the end, that is the book of Daniel. And with that, we're done. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, some fruit in the Bible is a little harder to reach than others. Some of the fruit that is the most delicious, however, Lord, lies at the very top of the tree And it requires of us a great climb, great effort, scrapes and bruises and little falls along the way as we try to understand and obtain the meaning of the text. 
And yet, Lord, you beckon us, you beckon us to tackle hard texts because you inspire those two. And the fruit, the fruit that, and the sweetness that that fruit contains once we reach the top is so worth it in the end. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would make us diligent. I pray that you would make us laborious meditators on your word, not giving up, not, not calling it quits, not throwing in the towel, not waving the checkered flag when we encounter hard texts. Oh, Lord, thank you for the challenge of what Daniel has been for me personally. And I pray that you would make us a hardy people. I pray that you would produce in us all the things that eschatology should produce in us. I pray that you would, you would help us to face fiery furnaces and to stare down murderous kings and to face a hostile culture that just wants us to shut up and be silent and to disappear or change and to believe what they believe. And yet, Lord, help us, help us to say that we will not bow because we see that your plan is certain and secure. Oh, Lord, make us a church who hungers for our eternal home and that that hunger would translate in us a passion and desire to reach as many people with the gospel as absolutely possible. Fill us with that urgency. Thank you for the journey and the joy that the book of Daniel has been. May it bear rich fruit always and only for the glory of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, a couple announcements here um, as we close, and then a, a benediction. Uh, first thing is, um, you know, we times like this, uh, not only pandemics, but also times of, of great hostility out there in the world, this is time to get equipped and to understand what the Bible really has to say. Uh, little um, biased sound bites that are, are on the news are basically worthless for us to, to be able to make you know, really clear judgments and, and statements about what's happening. So what we need to do is read good books. And so the book of the month for, is it June? It is June. Book of the month for June is a biblical answer for racial unity. We don't have any copies here now. We, we just ordered them. They'll be here on Tuesday, which doesn't help you. But so they'll be available next Sunday, and they'll be $10. And I even know some of the guys who contributed to the book, and, and so I'm so uh, grateful for this resource. So if you want something that's clear-headed and biblical and sharp and it's going to give you answers to be able to dialogue with people so we don't fall off the the knife edge of of balance that we are clear and speak truth this is a book that you have to get your hands on and so if you don't have 10 bucks just talk to us and we'll you know we'll help you out uh second uh starting in july july 14th we are gonna we're just gonna continue to do our equipping classes the we're gonna do one on the life of christ that'll begin it it says sorry um I made a mistake. It's actually, the class is going to be Sunday morning, so pretend that says July 12th, Sunday mornings, okay? Um, Just pretend, like like when we were little kids. So Sunday morning, starting July 12th, it'll be a Life of Christ class. This is going to be really sweet. This will be really good for us this summer. We're going to walk through the Gospels and hit the the high, pivotal moments. They were all pivotal, so how do you choose? But we will walk through the Life of Christ, and that'll happen uh, from 9 to uh, 10.15 or whatever it is that we have on a Sunday morning. So I encourage you to be a part of that. I don't even know if we're going to make you register. Just show up and, and uh, we'll teach. So it'll be a real treat. It'll be a real tr- uh, pleasure to be a part of that. So that'll be that. Uh, the last thing is I'm going to uh, call an audible on the third announcement. I don't even know if there was one, but I'm going to make one. 
Uh, I did this a few weeks ago on a video, and I just wanted to make a public statement, sort of give you some tools to think through how to respond to the, the, you know, the hostility that's out there. As you guys know, that there's been a, a number of um, incidents, and, and, and many of those have been involved, uh, the black community, and, and many of those we can point a, figu- a finger at and, and declare them to be, to be racist and evil and wicked. And, and, and there is just a barrage of information coming at us at a thousand miles per hour. And it's so hard to process what's right and true. And so I know this is probably, you've probably heard me say this before, but here, here are six ways to respond in the middle of something like this. Six ways to respond. This will go really fast. Number one, uh, we need to respond with realization and confession. Realization and confession. What I mean is that we need to realize that that same propensity to hate somebody lurks in the heart of every single person. But we are not immune from it. This, 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 this so transcends blacks and whites. It so transcends this. This is about the sin that corrupts every single human heart. Right? Sin is the biggest problem in the universe. So we need to realize those and confess those. Number two, uh, we need to respond with indignation. Indignation. We need to respond with real outrage at any time, regardless of the color of their skin, is, is murdered or any injustice is committed against them, right? This is, this is not a race issue. This is a glory of God issue, right? All people equally created in the image and likeness of God. Christ purchased some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So we should feel real indignation and outrage whenever we see any, any kind of injustice or... Um, or when, when there is something, uh, uh, injustice committed against someone in the image of God. Uh, number three, we should respond with compassion. We should respond with compassion, right? I mean, there, there are things that, that, there are complicated issues that go back centuries that we are feeling the effects of now, today, and again, little soundbite things from the news just doesn't cut it, right? So we have to have compassion. There might be issues, there might be things at stake that we just don't understand and we just need to go slow and be kind and not emotional and just respond with compassion um, and in, uh, uh, towards anyone who is um, you know, experiencing any injustice. Uh, number four, we should respond with supplication. We need to pray, in other words. We need to pray for people in, in all communities, black and white communities, people who know Christ to rise up and declare the gospel. Right? This is a Christ issue. This is a Christ opportunity for the gospel. So plead, plead with God to provide opportunities because that's where real reform and change is going to happen. Individuals proclaiming the gospel. Number five brings me easily to evangelization. We need to evangelize. We need to take these opportunities right now to evangelize people. We are the ones who have the most uh, um, unembarrassing message on the planet, right? So we need to take this opportunity at this moment of crisis to provide real hope and real answers with the gospel. Have people into your homes or over the fence or something. And then number six, we need to respond with anticipation, Anticipation. In other words, we need to anticipate the time when things like this will never happen anymore, namely in the kingdom and in the new heavens and the new earth. And what that should do is propel us to offer real hope through the gospel uh, to people who do not have it. Okay, so let's be salt and light. In other words, that's what this is. Um, Okay, so I I realize that we are out of steam here, but stand for a benediction. It'll take 15 seconds, then we'll be gone. 
thanks for enduring that. Also, when we, when we exit, uh, the doors to the right, so of, of, or to Jaime's left, those doors will open up and exit out those doors. It will start on this side, so you don't have to walk by anyone. Just we'll kind of exit uh, starting on that side and work our way that way, and, and um, we'll do it that way if that makes sense. Okay, benediction. May the God of Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who rules history, who reigns supreme, and who redeems ruined sinners through the sacrifice of his son. May he use you, Christ community, may he use you this week to make others wise and to lead many to righteousness through the proclamation of the gospel. You are dismissed.